Hey, Cole, are you ready for more holiday horror this week? Yes. Good, because today I'm talking about a Canadian Christmas slasher that really begs the question, why it gotta be black? Oh, boy. Welcome to Second to Die, a horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. And sometimes horror. I'm Max. And I'm Cole. And we'll be your hosts today. And every day. Well, every week. Because it's our show. (laughs) And not yours. Today, I'm talking about the 1974 classic and, some would argue, original slasher flick, Black Christmas. Oh, exactly. What did you think it was going to be? So this is the film. I actually think I may have mentioned this back when I did Slumber Party Massacre because Black Christmas is credited as being one of the original slasher flicks and kind of partly responsible for inventing the genre. Some people say it is the first slasher flick. Obviously, if you want to know about All the history, you can go back and listen to the other episode where I talk about the Italian giallos and things like that. But Black Christmas, many would say for slasher, it has a lot of the qualities that we had discussed where there's this unknown killer, you don't really know anything about him, etc., etc. I'll explain all of that later. But I wanted to do it because, one, it's holiday-themed. Kind of. Christmas, it is Christmas time in this movie, but it is not important that it's Christmas time. I mean, like... It's not like last week where in Silent Night, Deadly Night, San- the killer is dressed as Santa Claus. Like, it's not anything like that. But there, it is Christmas season. There's, like, caroling and stuff. Can't wait. Yeah. Tell me more. <laughs> I'll tell you more. All right. It's directed by Bob Clark. It's written by A. Roy Moore. The original title of it was Silent Night, Evil Night. But... That's a little repetitive. <laughs> Yeah, I don't like that very much, which I'm so I'm glad they changed it. And obviously, Silent Night, Deadly Night was in the 80s. This is 1974. So this is actually a, before that. But it doesn't. Silent Night, Deadly Night hasn't has like a ring to it. Silent Night, Evil Night doesn't, in my opinion. Anyway, the movie was inspired by the urban legend, The Babysitter and the Man Upstairs. So for people who don't know. I wasn't really sure what they were talking about, but then when I read the urban legend, I knew exactly what it was. I had just never heard it called that. And that's the one where it's the babysitter who keeps getting the calls throughout the day or throughout the night that are like, you should go check on the kids. You should go check on the kids. And then she gets the police to trace the call. And they're like, the call's coming from inside the house. Oh. So it's that. And I feel like that's been done a lot. But keep in mind, this is 1974, so I it wasn't a big thing, I don't think, to make urban legends in the films. And I could not find an earlier rendition of that urban legend in film, so this may have been one of the first, if not the first. Also inspired by a series of real-life murders that took place in the Westmont neighborhood of Montreal, Quebec, uh, that, I guess, Moore had kind of read about. So he kind of worked them into his screenplay that he had written under the title stop me and then you know screenplays go through a lot of iterations and so eventually it became this black christmas screenplay interesting i'd be curious to know if stop me was originally a christmas film i can't remember i do know that 
they they turned it so this takes place in a college campus mostly in a sorority house and i know that that was later on added and i believe it was this is like not in my notes but i believe it was the director who wanted to do specifically college kids because he thought that the way that college kids had been being portrayed in a lot of movies at the time was really sort of like um vapid and hollow and he thought that it didn't show them as real people and he wanted to do a movie that kind of showed them more as like real people that had their own personalities and their own characteristics although i went to college and i don't think vapid and hollow is that far off anyways yikes <laughs> so the murders that inspired it were are they occurred in 1943 so they were like way before but they were perpetrated by a 14 year old boy who bludgeoned several of his family members to death Oh, okay. That escalated quickly. Yeah. Oh, this is kind of a crossover again, like a real true crime crossover, because there's another part, too, that I'm about to mention in, like, not that many minutes about it as well. Yay! So, it was shot in Toronto in 1974, as I said. The budget was 620000 Overall, internationally, Black Christmas grossed over $4 million. Okay, so not too shabby. Not too shabby. It was quite successful. And is the first film in the Black Christmas movie series, being followed by a 2006 remake and a 2019 remake. So I guess it's a series, but it's literally just remakes. I haven't seen either of those. I don't really have any interest in that. I remember when the 2006, was it? Yes. Remake came out. I didn't see it, but I just remember seeing previews and stuff. Yeah. I, to be honest, I really can't even think of them. I might recognize something if I saw it, but I do know that there's been a lot of like sort of renditions on this plot kind of situation with the phone call coming from inside the house since then. So it was pretty well received when it came out, though not like amazing, but has kind of retroactively gained recognition and been regarded by some as, as I saw in one of the articles I read, one of the greatest horror films ever made. Ooh, now I'm very interested. Yeah, it's, I don't know necessarily that I would say that I think that, but not, but I was thinking more on it and maybe I do kind of agree with that because it has a very similar impact and I would say it's as well done as something like Halloween. And I think my brain, my brain compared it a lot as I watched it, but I think partly because they're both seventies, even though this is a little bit earlier in the seventies. They're both seventies films. The style is kind of same, and honestly, the kind of like the quality of film. So it has like just a look to it. And they're both based on holidays. <laughs> and they're both based on holidays. Did I can I tell you? I had a serious missed opportunity because when I was watching this, it was like suggesting other horror movies to me, and one of them uh, was a Thanksgiving movie called Thanksgiving. Oh, I know. I should have done more Thanksgiving movies in November. Next year. <laughs> yeah. Next year is going to be all holiday-themed movies. Write it down. Okay, so more fun facts about this and also something very interesting. And a crossover into the true crime genre. And the Florida crossover. Ooh. We've got a double header, double header for you, whatever. Yay. So the film, under the title Stranger in the House, was set to make its network television premiere on Saturday, January 28th, 1978. On NBC, they did this thing called Saturday Night at the Movies. But two weeks prior to its premiere, the Chi Omega Sorority House on the campus of Florida State University in Tallahassee was the scene of a double murder in which two Chi Omega sisters sleeping in their beds were bludgeoned to death. 
The killer then went to a nearby room in the sorority house and violently attacked two other sleeping co-eds who survived. That killer, later identified, of course, as Ted Bundy. Yay! So, a few days before the oh, movie... Oh, I'm so sorry. Fun fact, he was arrested in my hometown. Yeah. It's all, all, all sorts of Florida. Carry on. I'm sorry. I didn't mean <laughs> No, that. that's cool. No, I don't mind being interrupted. This is just kind of like fun stuff. I'm, well, I guess it's fun as Ted Bundy can be, who was arguably not that fun for a lot of people. Only if you have brown hair that you part down the middle. Yeah. I actually don't really get people's obsession with him, to be honest with you. Whatever. Anyways, um, so a few days before the movie was set to premiere on network television, the Florida governor actually personally contacted NBC to request that the movie not be shown due to its all-too-similar theme of murders in a sorority house by an unknown man-man. And because of this, NBC basically, instead of that movie, gave its affiliates in Florida, Georgia, and Alabama the option of showing alternative movies for that night. And that's called compassion. Yeah. That's what we need, more compassion for Florida, Georgia, and Alabama. Although, actually, we're okay with Georgia right now. For the time being. (laughs) For the time being. You're on probation. They've narrowly escaped our gaze. All right, so as I said, it's kind of been noted for uh, having a huge influence in the slasher genre, also praised for influencing John Carpenter when he made Halloween. That goes without saying. It's also very apparent, too, because I had thought... So for some weird reason, I think I actually did see this movie a long time ago, probably when I was a small child and (laughs) should not have been watching it, but I didn't remember it that well. So when I watched it for this episode, I had actually forgotten when... I had always thought that Halloween kind of sort of um, really kind of pioneered that whole really creepy first person view stalker thing. Well, that is not the case because Black Christmas also does it. And in a similar fashion, I also think Psycho kind of does it a little bit too, but Black Christmas does it more like Halloween does it. So you can kind of see the influence on John Carpenter there. Also, which I took down only for you. There was a novelization of the film written by Lee Hayes and published by Popular Library in 1976. Ooh. Maybe I should track that down sometime. I'm doing my Christmas book today, so it'll have to be for next year. But I do plan ahead, so. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a horror book from the 70s. I mean, it's probably the same story, but I feel like the horror that you read from back then is always like a lot more batshit. Oh, you just wait. (laughs) This isn't that crazy. Although this has a lot of like interesting themes I'll talk about. And some things, I don't know. Like it's got heavy hitting subjects. Not Christmas, but you know, whatever. Anyways, I'm going to start talking about the movie a little bit. And we'll move from there. The plot is, it's a slasher flick. So it's not like that crazy or anything like that. But... Worth noting, we open up on a cozy little sorority house. It's the Pi Kappa Sig, and it's all decorated for Christmas. You immediately get a point of view scene from this, like, killer who... So, this killer makes all these sort of prank or crank calls throughout the movie. And when it's his point of view, at first, he's like a real heavy breather. Like, almost like a pug heavy breather. He's a breather. Yeah. It's (laughs) really... I don't know. I was just thinking, like, I don't know. Like, dude, get, like, a nasal strip or something. Oh, sweet baby. He's got nasal issues. Yeah, so he was doing that. But then it starts getting real creepy because he makes these calls. 
and the calls are like real weird. Like, I don't know if they're, I'm assuming they're ad lib because nobody could script it, but he calls, I'll point out some of the times when he calls, but he like is repeatedly calling the sorority house throughout the film. And they go from like heavy breathing pug noises to like grumbles and screams and gurgles. And then him talking in like a couple different voices and making references to these like characters of Billy and Agnes. And he'll be like, Billy, 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 look what you did to Agnes. Like, the fuck? Yeah. No. Like, imagine if you were at home no, one night. No, I don't want to. Yeah, and you just kept getting these calls of somebody saying that into the phone. It's Creepster. Fuck that. Nope. Mm-mm. Firm pass. <laughs> yeah. So, there's a Christmas party that basically is just to introduce all the characters, and so that's kind of how it starts. But very important is, like, real quick, like, 11 minutes or so into the film, the character of Claire goes upstairs and ends up getting murdered. <laughs> Fun fact. Um, so this is the 70s. This is not the most PC movie in the world by a long shot. It's not the worst thing I've seen, but there are some kind of cringy moments that make you go like, okay. Also, when the guy calls, originally they call him the moaner because I guess he used to just moan, but then it escalates into the weirdness. But... They're talking kind of about like general craziness around the town and the girl Claire is talking to the girl Barb and is like, you know, that town girl that was raped a couple weeks ago to which Barb replies, darling, you can't rape a townie. So that's <laughs> probably that's the only like, well, that's one of and the most problematic things in this film. It's the 70s. I can't really say much more than that. Wow. So we're going to move past that line, but I thought I'd mention it. And, but that's okay because Claire goes upstairs and she gets killed for saying it. So the world karma makes everything right. She actually is looking for the cat because she hears the cat. Cats will always get you killed. She's looking for the cat and she thinks it's in the closet, but the cat is not in the closet. The killer is in the closet. And basically, is he just sitting there meowing? He is not meowing. He's sitting there and he keeps making noises and she assumes it's the cat because who else would be in the closet? Not like like ruffling noises, like rum, rummaging around noises. I mean, I was in the closet for 17 years, so. That's fair. <laughs> Moving on. So she gets killed. Good for her. And then a huge part of the movie is actually everyone looking for Claire because she was supposed to meet her dad. But then her dad, like, obviously she never meets him. So then he goes to the sorority house and is like, where's Claire? And everyone's like, we don't know. We, maybe she's at the fraternity house and she's not. And so, like, everyone's looking for Claire for a really long time. And actually, they go to the Barb goes to the police station and the police officer is not really taking it seriously that they can't find her, which I think it's only maybe been like a day, if even that. And that is true. Like, they don't generally take missing persons reports seriously until a little while after. But. The police officer is like, okay, what's the number for the sorority house? And Barb goes, it's Felatio 20880. I'm not sure in what universe that's a phone number, but I appreciate her sass. Her desperate attempt at wit. But then the police officer is like, he's like this like sweet baby angel and doesn't know what the word Felatio means. And then he ends up saying it. I know. He had th- I don't know, it's the 70s. He ends up saying it to the other officers and they all make fun of him. Ha ha ha. It's really funny. You didn't know what fellatio meant. Fellatio means blowjob for our listeners. 
And then the oral sex. So moving along, and also before I forget, I forgot to talk about who some of the actors are. Barb is played by Margot Kidder. I just thought maybe I should give her a shout out. She's one of the main people. She's not... The concept of the final girl wasn't really a thing yet because that was more of something that kind of started in the late 70s with Halloween. But either way, that's her. There's a character of Jess played by Olivia Hussey and a character of Phil, which I can only assume is short for Phyllis. And she's played by Andrea Martin. And I just mentioned her because she also plays Hedwig's manager in Hedwig and the Angry Inch. And I knew I recognized her and I was really happy about that. And then uh, the only other actor I'll mention because he's kind of major is this character of Peter. He's played by Keir Dulea. His name is spelled real weird. Like, maybe like Irish or something. I don't know. But I'm assuming that's how you say it. Don't be rude. He's like, well, in this movie, he actually doesn't look that great. And he's super toxic. So I was like, ugh. He's dating Jess, even though she could do much better. But he's also in 2001, A Space Odyssey. And its sequel, 2010, The Year We Made Contact. The first one was 1968 for people who are counting at home. And in those, he's a super dreamboat. Also... When I was, like, thinking about it, I was like, 2001, A Space Odyssey, and 2010, like, we're, like, way past those years, and we are not Space Odysseying, like, at all. I mean, I can't remember exactly what year, but I want to say we've passed the year the Jetsons was supposed to be set in, so that that didn't happen. I feel like in a lot of ways, we've made some leaps. I mean, people can literally listen to us rant in the comfort of their own homes, but in a lot of ways, I feel like we're real behind science fiction. They had high hopes for the future, and we have not lived up to those expectations. Because we don't tax the wealthy. Anyway. Yikes. That's real. Okay. So they go to try to report it, and all that happens. I'm going to jump back into this plot now. So the character of Jess, who I mentioned, she's dating Peter, who I also mentioned. Jess has, like, some accent in this. And at first I was like, this sounds like an American doing a really terrible British accent. And then I was like, no, this sounds like a foreign actress. And then I looked her up, and she is actually a British actress, but her accent is real weird. So I can't, I don't get what was going on there. Maybe she was trying to hide her British accent and was just failing really hard at it. Oh, that could be. That might actually be exactly what it was. But Jess is talking to Peter, and he's like canceling their holiday plans because of work or something, and she's not happy. And he says, I love you. And she hits him back with the I know. That's only okay if someone's about to be frozen in carbonite. (laughs) And even then, only moderately okay. Yeah, so Jess Jess has a lot of things on her mind. Because it turns out that she's pregnant, and she goes to tell Peter about it. And she's like, I'm going to have an abortion, which is progressive for the 70s. And then Peter Peter promptly responds with, you can't make a decision like that. You haven't even asked me. Which is... Not super progressive, even for the 70s. That's weird, Peter. I didn't realize you were the one carrying the fucking child. Are you a seahorse? And then Peter comes back with, do you know how important this afternoon is to me? Why don't you just get out of here? Because he has like a recital for his piano conservatory that afternoon. Homo. Hey, cut that. Does he die? Can he die next? I would really like for him to die next. He does not die next. Ooh, I do like the emphasis on the word next there, though. (laughs) That lets me know that my thirst for his blood will soon be satisfied. Actually, his death is kind of symbolic in a way and actually pretty 
meaningful. At some point, they're they're actually thinking that maybe Peter is the killer. Even though Peter is literally present when one of the prank calls happens and just tells the police this. So he couldn't be. But whatever. We don't care about that kind of stuff. So then, side note, Peter's recital doesn't go well, and he smashes his piano to pieces like a toxic man-child. So, good for him. Yikes. Now, then real quick, the sorority mother goes looking for the cat, and she gets killed, too. Yay, death. Yeah. I'm moving along, because there's too many deaths. Uh, The police end up tapping the phones, and... I don't know how 70s phone taps work because I don't know. It seemed real unrealistic. Like the one of the guys is like literally at the phone company, like looking at like this big room full of like switchboards and stuff and like walking through them as the phone calls going on and trying to like see what lights are lighting up. I don't know. It looked real wonky, but I'm just going to b- believe that that's how phone tappings worked back then. So they tap the phone. Meanwhile, Barb and Phil get killed. Barb gets stabbed with a with a like crystal unicorn head decorative thing that she had. Oh my god! Yeah, while stabbed she, where? Yeah, while she's sleeping. So she gets killed with that. Phil is killed off camera. But essentially, what happens? This is the movie. This is kind of like to the end of the movie. There's there's a lot of like character development in this movie, which I'll talk about later in my final thoughts, which is good. But so essentially, what happens is. They had spent a few calls trying to get Jess to talk to the crank call guy long enough to trace it because it does take a little bit of time to trace calls. And it wasn't happening, wasn't happening. Finally, they trace it and they call the police and they're like, it's coming from this number. And they're like, that can't be right. That's the address that she's at. You're getting it mixed up. And they're like, no, we're not. And he's like, oh, my God, the call is coming from inside the house. Bom, bom, bom. So then he, the detective calls the cop and is like, Call Jess, tell her, the call's coming from inside the house. Call Jess, tell her to leave the house. Don't tell her why. Just tell her to immediately get out of the house and go to the officer that's outside in his car. So the police officer is like, gotcha, no problem. So the police officer calls Jess and is like, Jess, the killer is in the house. You have to get out. Listening skills. Well, (laughs) the moral of the story here is please read the directions thoroughly before you begin the test. So, okay, in his defense a little bit, he actually does try at first to be like, you need to go out of the house right now. And she's like, why? And he's like, just go out of the house. Do what I tell you. And she's like, why? And he's like, just the killers in the house. Get out of the house. (laughs) So then it's like, you know, like freak out music and stuff like that. So what does Jess do like any normal intelligent person? Does she get out of the house immediately? Of course not. She makes her way (laughs) to the stairs. Making her way downtown. (laughs) So she grabs a fire poker and starts going upstairs because she knows that Barb and Phil are upstairs. And she's like, Barb, Phil. And I'm like, girl, we're no, you need to get out. This is every woman for herself. So then she's walking around the house yelling, Barb, Phil, knowing that this killer is in the house. And so then she ends up opening Barb's bedroom and her and Phil are dead on the bed. So she's freaking out. And then in 100%, the most terrifying, so well done part of this movie. So she had like opened the door and she sees them and she freaks out and she kind of stumbles and trips. And then she like turns her head and in the hinge crack of the door is an eyeball Fuck that. And he, she, and then you hear, Billy, Billy, look what you did to Agnes, Billy. And it's just like eyeball giving like crazy eye. It is 
legitimately terrifying. It's really kind of like that here's Johnny moment from The Shining. It's uh, it's really crazy. Mm-mm. Yeah. So then there's this like slight chasing. It's really short, which I love. And she ends up going to the basement, locking the door. <laughs> I know. Oh, I so th- she passed the first floor, like where she could just spring free from the front door and run to the police officer. She's like, no, 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 no. He told me what to do, so I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go to the basement. So I hear your concerns. The movie does address this. Jess runs to the front door, but the front door is locked, and she's a movie, and she's a woman in the 70s, so she cannot figure out how to get it unlocked. Well, her delicate hands. So she has to run to the basement instead. She literally does try to open the front door and can't get it open. The killer is not right behind her. He's at the top of the stairs, and she's, like, shaking it and shaking it, and then just decides to give up. Because, I mean, there... <laughs> like... It's a front door lock. There's no way it's locked from outside. But anyways, so she runs to the basement. She latches the door. The killer is like frantically pounding against the door and then it just stops. And so then she's, of course, freaking out. So then she goes downstairs and she hides kind of in the corner and she sees the figure outside of the window and she assumes it's him and it's Peter. And he's like, Jess, Jess. And then he's like, Jess, are you in there? Which, first of all, why would you think she was in the basement? Like... That makes no sense. And then he apparently has no cause for concern, but breaks the window, goes into the basement. Jess is still hiding from him because now Jess is like thinking he's the killer, even though he clearly could not be the killer because he was, again, present with her when one of the phone calls was made. But Peter finds Jess. And then long story short, Jess kills Peter. Yes. (laughs) With the fire thing. She's all like, in a state of shock. The police come and they find Peter dead and Jess like kind of passed out in a state of shock. So then they get her into the bed and they're like, okay, Jess, you're great. We're going to save you. We're going to protect you. And then they're like, the press is here. And then the police all leave. By the way, this is still the sorority house. She's like being held in the sorority house. So then the police all leave to go deal with the press and they leave Jess alone And then, like, the camera kind of pans, and you see, like, the bedrooms. And the bedrooms still have these, like, bloodstained beds. So it's like, Jess is just, like, asleep because she's been through this traumatic experience. Nobody's staying with her to comfort her, and nobody's going to be there when she wakes up. She's going to wake up alone in that same house. And then it kind of goes to the... It has one of those, like, drop attic ceiling things. And the killer had been in the attic this whole time. And then from that drop attic thing, you start hearing, like, little giggly noises and, like, really, really disturbing things. And, like, belly. Kind of like that, yeah. And then it kind of goes to the attic, and you see Claire's face, which still has the plastic bag over it dead, sitting at the window. And it zooms out. And the last shot of the movie is the same as the first shot of the movie of the sorority house decorated for Christmas as a slow zoom with the, like, dead, asphyxiated... Claire face in the attic window but it zooms out to where you can't see it and then it's just the Christmas sorority house and that's how it ends so you don't really know what happens to Jess huh I actually liked how it ended yeah so that's Black Christmas my final thoughts a little bit it was kind of interesting because the, oh one thing that was kind of interesting I thought about this is that it does not take place in one night it takes place over the course of a couple of days like the killings are not all the same day or all the same night I know like listening to this I'm talking fast and whatever But that I thought was kind of cool. It did touch on a lot of 
big issues, sort of like abortion. There's also some alcoholic characters. I didn't really talk about it because because there's not time. That's all. And a lot of the humor in it is very sexualized, especially the character of Barb. She's like this like sexually liberated person. Obviously, the killer's super creepy, the gurgles and stuff like that. I don't know. It's pretty effective. And that one final scene where like Jess and him have this conversation is actually like quite disturbing. So all in all, I like it. I think if you're looking for a Christmas movie, oh, the reason that I say this isn't really, it's a Christmas movie because it takes place around Christmas. Like there's Christmas lights and shit everywhere, but it does, it's not like a direct Christmas. Like it's not a Santa killer or like Frosty the Snowman killer, anything like dumb like that. It's just, this happens to take place over the holidays. Has no relevance to the plot, but that's okay. So if you're looking for a good Christmas movie and you haven't seen this, I would put this on your list because it really is iconic. It's kind of a must-see if you're into slasher horror at all. You'll understand a lot of how the genre has evolved. I'll say that. So, anyways, I've talked enough about Black Christmas. Now, tell me what... I know you're so excited about this. So tell me what you're going to talk I about. I am. I'm so excited. I can't wait. Um, Because my book this week makes Curse Be the Child Seem Tame. That's, um, that is a, a hefty promise. I'll say that. Well, buckle up, buttercup, and brace yourself because I have a Christmas gift for you. This week, I am doing The Sibling by Adam Hall, and I'm honestly still speechless. Weeks after reading it. Uh, it was published in 1979, so we are actually in the same decade for oh, once. Yeah. And get ready for the pinnacle of crazy. The cover, which was painted by Martin Hoffman, is pretty simple. Pardon my copy when you see it on Instagram. I bought it used, and it had been marked for clearance, so there's, like, marker on the front. Anyway, it shows a woman with that, like, giant late 70s, early 80s permed for Jesus hair. Yeah, I mean, she's kind of got that a little bit of, like, that... I was going to say Michael Jackson hair, but it's, like, bigger than that, bushier than that. Also, are you going to say anything about her eyes? No, actually, but go ahead. One of her eyes is, like, one of her irises is bigger than the other. I don't know if that's, like, an art thing or if that's intentional, but I kind of, like, want to, like, toss you this back so you can see it. I never noticed that. Yeah, it definitely kind of gives her that crazy eye look. Uh, Well, she's got a lot to feel crazy about. She's holding a package. It appears to be stained with blood. That is what it is. If you open the front cover, which we'll post a picture of this as well, to the step back, which is what the picture right behind the cover is called for a book, we see a man in a tuxedo. There are several bloodstained packages in front of him and blood dripping from his hand. It's really great, but honestly, he looks like a magician to me. They also look very similar. I can only assume that they are siblings by the title. Oh, just get ready. The tagline is on the back, but I can't resist. He was young and sensual, yet demonic and ungodly. That would have, like, flooded my teenage basement. I can't even tell you. Well, go ahead. <laughs> uh, the blurb, even better. This one's so batshit. I'm so ready. Locked in the throes of forbidden love, he was driven by black, hellish forces from beyond the grave. And the evil he did the horrors he wreaked on one famous family would terrify the world for all time. That's the blurb. 
That's the barb. I like it. It's dark. It's spooky. Tells you a lot about it, though, doesn't it? Uh, So here's the thing. The family isn't famous. They're just prominent in their Connecticut town. And I don't think he really terrifies the rest of the world. Anyway, I'm going to go through the cast of characters real quick because there's kind of like a core group and it's just easier that way. So we have Lorraine Stoyvesant and she is the mother of the family. She is super waspy. Hmm. Super waspy. Much like the rest of the characters. This is like wasp horror. It's great. <laughs> I mean, it's in Connecticut. Shout out to our listeners in Connecticut. <laughs> this tells us so much about you, JK. Then we have Charles Stuyvesant. He's the father. He is a surgeon. He's mostly absent. Whatever. I'm, well, yeah. I mean, I feel like that. Sure. Yeah. Waspy Connecticut family, surgeon father is not really round. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we have Debbie Stuyvesant. She is the daughter. She is 15. And she is, at the start of the book, coming home from her Swiss boarding school for the first time in, like, a few years. She's been sent away. We'll get to that. Okay. Then we have Raph, short for Raphael, Raph Stoyvesant. I hate it. He's the son. He's 16. He's been off to prep school, and he is coming home for his birthday, which is December 19th, but he's also staying for the rest of winter break. Okay. And then last but not least, we have Allison Scarborough. She is Lorraine's best friend. She lives close by, and she is a cougar on the prowl. Mm, My favorite. We'll also get to that, too. It's so good. (laughs) Before I start, I'm going to go ahead and give a content warning for this book. There is a lot of intensity and a lot of, like, taboo sexual things that occur. I just want people to be prepared. Take care of yourself. If that means not listening to this episode, that's fine. So our story opens with a funeral, wherein someone is being buried in a Rolls Royce that is filled to overflowing with roses. Like, the whole car is being buried? Yes. Jesus. Their coffin is the Rolls Royce being filled with roses. This has literally nothing to do with the plot. Whatsoever. I'm just bringing it up because now I know how I want to go. Sure. Shortly thereafter, we are at Raph's 16th birthday party, and there is a very... Very uncomfortable amount of time spent talking about just how smoking hot Raph is. Oh, because and he's 16? So magnetic. He's so charming. He's so sexy. It's really uncomfortable. And Allison decides that she's going to, like, flirt with him and play with him a little bit. Remember, Allison is, like, I want to say she's, like, in her 30s or something. (laughs) Maybe. She's, like, well into it. I mean, she's his mom's best friend. Yeah, okay. And she's like, I really want some of that underage D. Oh, yikes. So Debbie arrives at the party. And at first, Raph doesn't recognize her. And this is when we learn that they have been separated for three years because Raph kept tormenting her when they were children. Okay. Three. I mean, three years isn't that long, but I'll buy it. When it's like a fifth of your life, though, because they're like 15, 16. Sure. You do change a lot in those years. You get a lot of like vague hints there's like something involving horses and something involving rats apparently one time he took her favorite doll stabbed it through the eye with a candy cane and then ran pig's blood down its face i mean kids do all of that until the pig's blood part this is true and here is also where the true horror sets in because the horror in this book is actually that not a single person is acknowledging the palpable sexual tension between debbie and raf brother and sister just recap in case we've forgotten yeah sure 
Like he keeps talking about how distracting he finds her. And this scene is from his point of view. And he keeps thinking about her curves and her breasts. But her reaction when she saw him, you ask, you didn't ask, but I'm pretending that you did. She peed herself a little bit. Wait, what? Literally, she, like, he is, of course, because they live in this huge, like, manor house in Connecticut. She comes around the corner at the top of the stairs. I mean, it's set up almost like a romantic scene. He is at the bottom of the stairs talking to his mom, and she comes around the corner at the top, and, like, he looks up, and he sees her, and she looks down, and she sees him, and she wets her panties a little bit. That, that's not a thing. What? Does that happen? I don't think girls pee themselves when they see someone that's attractive. I'm going out on a limb here. Well, she was also kind of like afraid of him at the same time. Because <laughs> okay. remember, he tormented her. <laughs> okay. But still. Also, she gets a thrill from the thought of protecting herself if he terrorizes her again. And it feels to her, and here I quote, like coming suddenly without touching herself. What? Yes. The thrill that she feels over the fact that she's not afraid to fight back if he tries to terrorize her gives her the same thrill as having like a spontaneous orgasm out of nowhere. Um, I should mention here, this was published by Playboy Publishing. Oh, that, that also means that I feel like the author is fully aware of how old these kids are. 15 and 16. Yeah. That's fine. It gets worse. So I'm going to go ahead and mention that there is an actual horror plot to this story and it is very weak and basically the real horror is the incest and the ridiculous over sexualization of children so buckle up because that's where i'm going to focus and i'll talk about the horror plot like a little bit so there's a point the next day where they're playing hide and seek a 15 and a 16 year old yeah like you do like you do well it does say that like Lorraine is talking to Allison. She's like, it's almost like because they lost their later childhood fighting and then being separated that they're reliving it, which is, you know, whatever. And Debbie jumps in a car and drives off because they have a massive piece of property. So, like, Raph is chasing her, so she jumps in a car and drives. Okay. Like you do when you're spoiled, privileged, and white. Yeah, I mean, that's believable. And so Raph gets in his car that he got for his birthday. He got a Jaguar, of course. And starts chasing after her. But then he starts tailgating her really, really closely until she is thrown off the road. But it's fine because she wasn't wearing a seatbelt. And when the car rolls, she miraculously just gets jettisoned out of the open passenger window or driver's side window into a snowbank and is fine. Yeah, that doesn't happen. This isn't a Disney movie. Wear your seatbelts, kids. Their mother decides to hide the accident, like from their father, like not tell their father. And they were going to pretend that Debbie's injuries were due to skiing and that the car that got crashed was really just stolen. (laughs) I do want to point out here, though, that the author takes great pains in the scene to describe Lorraine's lime green power suit with an amethyst belt. (laughs) That actually sounds great. (laughs) I thought you would like that. So I like made special note of it. It was like mentioned the suit. That that sounds like... um... That kind of boldness is kind of making a comeback these days. Um, Ryan Murphy likes to use stuff like that. It sounds like something he would do. Yeah. So we get a little bit more incest when later Debbie is contemplating how intimidated she is by Raph's masculinity. (laughs) I'm not even kidding. It's like, 
I was so intimidated by his masculinity. Like, it's very blunt. Because she has only ever had sex with her best friend, Monique. <laughs> what the fuck? Yes. <laughs> a random bisexual representation is really just to continue sexualizing a 15-year-old girl. <laughs> it's gross. Oh. Allison, however, is not intimidated because at the family Christmas Eve party, she dances all up on Raph. And the entire time is fantasizing about him ripping down the front of her dress and licking her nipples in front of his parents. I mean, couldn't they have just made these couple characters like four years older? Then it would still be weird, but not like gross. Buckle up. There's more. After the party, Raph comes by Debbie's room and he goes on and on about how beautiful she looks in her nightgown. She should be a model. She's perfect. She's beautiful. Looks like Linda Evangelista. <laughs> then they She's dance. She's a pedophile. Well, he, every, <laughs> everyone's a pedophile in this book. Oh, boy. Oh, God. Then they dance like you do. They just danced? Yeah, they just start dancing. I want to say that the party is still going on downstairs and they can hear the music. <laughs> okay. And he gets a boner. I mean, that's believable. Uh, So she kicks him out. But it turns out that she's a hypocrite because after he leaves, she masturbates while thinking of him. Mm, Well, I have nothing appropriate to say about that. Later on, he is over at Allison's house. I can't remember exactly why. I feel like, I don't know. She was like, oh, I need you to help me open a pickle jar or something. I really don't remember. But she's asking all of the cliche predator questions like, are you a virgin? And shit like that. And this is when Raph has a flashback of a previous life. A previous life? Yes, a previous life. Okay. I'll do a quick rundown of the all the past life stuff kind of towards the end. Sorry, I'm laughing because I forgot this part, even though I typed up the script yesterday. <laughs> In his flashback of his previous life, he is fucking a corpse while repeatedly thinking seed for the dead, seed for the dead. <laughs> I'm sorry. What? I told y'all. Like, I gave everyone the warning. That's a lot. Then he goes insane and rapes Allison. Okay. And after leaving, he convinces himself that the fear that he saw in her eyes was because she was intimidated by how much of a fucking stud he was and literally refers to his first time as beautiful. I don't really know what to say about this. In the author's defense, and there is not much to defend here. (laughs) Okay. At the very least, this is meant to show how crazy Raph is. It's not meant to be like, yes, he was a stud, and yes, it was beautiful. Like, you're meant to be, like, as horrified as possible by this scene. Does that mean it should be in there? No, it really shouldn't be. It's completely unnecessary. However, it's not like the author is saying that Raph is such a stud. It sounds like he's just going for literally to be as shocking as possible. Oh, that's cute. There's more. There's another scene where Raph tries to kill Debbie, but it's whatever. (laughs) Again, it's like past life shit. I'll explain it later. It's boring. Basically, he tries to like knock her off the roof. I don't know. Uh, But instead of being concerned about the fact that her brother just tried to kill her, she's jealous of the fact that he was at Allison's house the night before. And she's also thinking about the fact that Raph and Allison might have had sex. And she spends a lot of time lamenting the fact that the world would see her feelings for her brother as wrong. Well, 
I'm not going to say she's wrong there. Like she actually has the thought process of like, gosh, this sucks. And then she admits to herself that she is in love with her brother. Oh, it's like my stepson, my lover. But it's actually her blood brother. You're my sister, only by blood. (laughs) And this leads me to tell you about their sex scene. Oh, I'm sorry. The first sex scene. Last chance to turn back, y'all, because I am about to get graphic. Let me set the scene. They're on the roof of the family's manor house, looking out over the land. They're wearing tracksuits with nothing underneath them. And Debbie notes that this is very popular for teenagers to do because it feels so racy to wear nothing under your tracksuit. By the way, I almost laughed hysterically when... What what were you talking about with fuller tracksuits earlier? I think you were talking about, like, jokingly about buying my parents matching velour tracksuits. Yes, I said we should get your parents matching velour tracksuits for Christmas. And I almost died and also almost vomited <laughs> because of the scene that I'm about to describe to you. So they're relaxing and she decides that she's going to lie down and put her head in his lap. He, of course, gets an erection. So she starts rubbing her cheek against his boner. He starts stroking his hands through her hair, but eventually gets more forceful where he's basically moving her head back and forth by her hair on his boner. (laughs) This is not funny. I just cannot stop laughing. Then when he reaches the pinnacle of his sexual excitement, she turns her head and bites his dick while he is coming his pants. Bites it like, like hard. I think just like holds it between her teeth. Oh, okay. I see what it is. No, it's not okay. That's the thing. (laughs) I mean, there's a layer of fabric in between. It's fine. Fabric stops incest. (laughs) You're cutting that, Maximilian. It was pretty intense. Also, she has to take care of herself when she goes to her bedroom later, which is rude. (laughs) Yeah, well, that happens a lot, I'm pretty sure. True. This is very true. Once she does, she sees a gift on her vanity. And here you may be asking yourself, what is the appropriate gift to say, thank you for letting me rub your face against my crotch until I come in my pants? And I'm sure everyone listening has wondered this same thing at one point or another. Thankfully, Adam Hall is here to let you know that you're going to want to do is you're going to want to give them an eyeball. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds pretty. That sounds right. I mean, I was thinking like a paperweight or something, but eyeball sounds good. Yeah, an eyeball. Uh, We learned around this time that Raph has been going into the hospital and stealing body parts for Dear Debbie. Wait, why? We'll we'll get there. Okay. More past life shit. Okay. Basically, like, the whole past life plotline is a really flimsy attempt to excuse a book about a whole bunch of incest. Things roll along pretty quickly after this. Raph kills a dog while in the middle of a flashback, like, while they're, like, walking past a neighbor's house. He kills the neighbor's dog. And Debbie gets another gift as an apology. And what is it this time? How do you apologize for strangling a dog in front of your sister lover? A finger. Is Debbie concerned? Not overly so. She decides that she's going to hide his behavior because she loves him so much. She's not going to tell anyone about the body parts or the, like, incest. She's also still super jealous. So while her brother is giving her body parts, she takes the time to make sure that they're exclusive and he's not receiving face jobs from anyone else. I mean, God forbid. I mean, she. I, I make the joke about face jobs, but it's not even like, oh my God, I hope you're not having sex with anyone else. She's like, what we did on the roof the other night. 
Promise me you won't do that with anyone else. And at this point, I'm tired. (laughs) So Debbie overhears Lorraine talking to a therapist about how to handle Raph's increasingly erratic behavior. And what's funny is she doesn't even know about the incest in the gifts. This is just like strangling the neighbor's dog and running Debbie off the road. Yeah, I mean, those things probably weren't at least therapy. Well, the therapist suggests institutionalization. And Debbie is like, not to my man. So she goes back to her room to plan her escape. But wait, there's another gift. What could it be? The box is long, narrow. It's a penis. It's a dick in a box. He gives her a dick in a box. (laughs) Oh, God, what a lucky girl. At this point, they run away to a hunting lodge. It's wrapping up real fast. They run away to the family's hunting lodge. And then we have our second sex scene. And there is a deeply misogynistic part where after she has taken off her bra, she wishes that her breasts were bigger for him so that she could satisfy him better. Literally, there's like no other point. And then I was like, oh, yeah, Playboy Publishing. I remember now. Then he very graphically goes down on her. But we fade to black before they actually have sex. But I'm like, at that point, like, anyway, nothing quite compares to the face job. So it's whatever. The face job will forever be burned into my mind. Do you think that people, I feel like he wrote this book to appeal to people that want to read about kids having sex under the guise of like some horror movie. I mean, or some horror novel, like. There is the body parts thing and like him being crazy. That is not, not horror. I'll say that, but I'm not sure. I feel like this would have been okay if these kids were adults, then it would have been creepy and weird. And I could deal with like, I don't know. It's like, there's too many layers of inappropriateness to this book. You can have incest or pedophilia, but you can't have both. I kind of feel like that's the rule. That's, that's where we are. Yeah. With this podcast. I am, again, so sorry to all of my coworkers who listen to this. And anyone who does listen to this that I might meet in the future, I'm so sorry. I mean, this is a real book. Like, this is just a, this is a real book. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. People are reading this stuff. And to, like, in my defense, I knew it was about incest, but I didn't realize there was, like, graphic face jobs. So, anyway. Oh, God. After they've slept, Debbie confronts Raph about, like, the gifts and, like, some murder that happens whatever she ends up running into a bedroom and shutting him out and he leaves and she runs to the phone to call for help because it has finally hit her how fucked up everything is with like 10 pages left in this book and the phone lines are out so what's she gonna do she sets the lodge on fire as a smoke signal and then she runs off and raf runs back to the house once his head has cleared and he thinks that she's inside so he goes in after her to save her and the roof caves in on him the end all right, I'll buy it as the ending. I'm not sure you have to burn a house down to try to signal people. It's a little extreme. But to be honest, she's 15. Like She's 15 and it's in the 70s. It's not like she had a cell phone. It's also not like she's the most logical thinking person I've ever read about, heard about. Also, like it's just hitting her that she's been having sex with her brother who was giving her body parts. Oh, I also like completely forgot slash didn't want to say till the end anyway. They're actually only half siblings because Lorraine had an affair. It's still not okay, but it's slightly less. Did she know that? No. Debbie didn't know that. You find out as the reader towards the end, like after the face job. I wonder what the point of that is to justify it. 
Probably. But half-siblings are still half-siblings. It's only okay if it's step-siblings. <laughs> you have your cousins and then your first cousins. You're still going to have your, like, hills have eyes children. Oh, God. All right. So quick summary of the past life thing. In a past life, Raph was part of some sort of weird, like, pagan society. And he used to give parts of the human sacrifices to his sister, which is why he was giving Debbie body parts. But then she decided to have him killed for a ritual, so he had to kill her first, which is why he had that primal need to kill his sister. So yeah, like I said, the past life stuff wasn't all that super thrilling. It was just used to justify the rest of the story. So that the cop out, I feel like there could have been a more interesting part to that. Wait, what's the necrophilia from? Oh, in a past life, Raph fucked one of the sacrifices. I don't actually know why. Just for fun? I guess. Okay. Because he had to provide seed for the dead. I'm just going to randomly say that in your ear now. Seed for the dead. So all in all, I am going to give this book two out of five dicks in a box. Literally, the only thing that saved it from being my first one out of five is the funeral at the beginning with the roses and the Rolls Royce, which honestly feels so long ago at this point. I mean, it just, to be honest, it is really shocking and crazy, but it also just kind of sounds gross. For some weird reason, I find, I almost found like when we did Chris by the Child, although I was cracking up during this one too, but when we did that, I thought it was like easier to like laugh at. This one, I almost am kind of more like creeped out by the author writing it than I was with Mr. Castle, you know? I told you that this made Curse Be the Child feel tame. This feels more, this, I think it's like Curse Be the Child, I was kind of like, this is just weird and bonkers. And also I was not prepared for all of these weird books. And so it was like, the first ones was hitting me. This one, it almost seems like it's written in kind of like a creeper fetishization way that, I don't know, it rubs me the wrong way. No pun intended. Oh, boy. <laughs> Yikes. I really didn't even mean that. Oh, God, I'm so clever. I cracked myself up. Oh, Lord. Anyways, sounds great. I mean, I feel like I can ask if you would die, but like, there's no murder in this, right? No one really dies. Well, Raph dies because the building falls down. On oh, him. yeah, yeah. But no, I wouldn't. It's just not the kind of story. No. Also, I don't feel like, when are we really hanging out with necrophilic incestuous teenagers? Never. Yeah. It's just like a niche in our friend group that we haven't built up. Would you die in Black Christmas? Um, No, because the killer is hiding out in a sorority house and I was... Not hiding out in sorority houses in my college days. Quite the opposite, in fact. You are hiding out in those frat houses. Maybe one or two. I've been inside a couple frat houses. I mean, anyways, moving along. I was not in sorority houses, so I would not have been killed by them. It also is, aside from Peter, who's killed by Jess, the killer only... Well, mm, I was actually... I'm going to correct myself. The killer only kills girls, mainly. He does actually kill the cop outside of the house, too. I skipped over that part, but... I just wouldn't have been involved in that whole situation. Like, Christmas party at a sorority house. I mean, if I had gone, I would hope the killer would kill me. God. That's just not my bag, you know? And if it is yours, that's totally valid. But it's neither of ours. And neither of us can even wrap our minds around the concept of it. To be honest, in college, I actually had a lot of friends that were in Greek society. It just wasn't my thing. So I did go to a couple parties. But... I did not enjoy them, and so I didn't go anymore. That's valid. The end. But yeah, we don't judge here. If you are a fraternity person or sorority person, 
and you enjoyed it, that's awesome. I'm glad when anybody enjoys anything they can, but it doesn't mean that I have to enjoy it. And I hope you don't get killed. Quick correction. We are not glad when you enjoy rubbing your sister's face against your groin. Don't yeah, do that. Don't do that. We're going to take a firm stance against that. Yeah. Mm, nope. No incest, please. And no pedophilia. Neither. Mm-mm. Or sexual assault. I mean, Raph was like necrophilia, pedophilia, sexual assault, incest. He hit the big four. All four of them are in this book. It's a lot. Anyway, on that note. On that note. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. We hope that if you celebrate Christmas, whether secularly like we do or religiously, that you have a very Merry Christmas. If you celebrate another holiday around this time of year, we hope that it is wonderful. If you don't celebrate any holidays, we hope that you enjoy the bank holidays that come along with being a Christian dominated society. You can find us on social media at second to die pod on Instagram and on Twitter and on Goodreads. You can also email us anytime you want questions, comments, concerns, movie or book suggestions, or if you just want to talk about life, reminisce about what's going on. If you celebrate a holiday around this time of year, tell us what you celebrate. Yeah, sure. Tell us how you celebrate it. Tell me all about it. We're really not leaving the house, so we would love to hear from you. And you can do that at secondtodiepod at gmail.com. And remember, if you can't be first, you can always be second to die.